And so I want to make an apology for what I'm going to do in the old sense of apology, which is to defend it. And to say to you that your preaching in a church should always be helpful. You should feel as if the preacher is always speaking directly to you. (laughs) And if you have grown up in a church where you always felt like the preacher was never speaking to you, that's a failure. And sometimes we do fail like that, and I'll I'll get back to that later. But what you really do want is you want the sermons, the preaching of God's Word, to be applicable. And if you look at the New Testament letters, you'll see they're all applicable. You see that Paul didn't have the ability as an apostle to be disconnected from the life of a community. Everything he writes. You'll see that even in dealing with that high man, Peter, that he had an inability to look at where Peter sat in the potluck and not make a theological application to him and go in in front of everybody at the potluck Resist him to his face for where he was sitting. You remember that where he says, I resisted Peter to his face because when the brothers came up from Jerusalem or up from uh, James, he says that he switched where he was seating instead of sitting with the Gentiles, the people not of the circumcision. He went and he moved over and sat with the Jews, the clean people, the, the charter members. And so here you think of the Apostle Paul rebuking Peter to his face in front of everybody. Now, that's bad enough. What would you think of a pastor who called out an elder, say, for instance, the oldest, most dignified elder of this church? I think we'd have to vote that that's Gene Taylor, right? Called him out publicly in a potluck because he wasn't sitting where he should sit and said that there was a theological failure there, a sin on the part of Gene Taylor. Well, you wouldn't like it, right? How many think you'd like it? I mean, there's not a hand up, right? Any? All right. So none of you would like it. Now, what if I were then writing a book about the problem and, and put in the book that I had resisted Gene Taylor to his face in front of everybody? How many of you think you'd like me putting that in the book and naming Gene Taylor? None of you, right? That's what your preaching is supposed to be. It is supposed to be painfully obvious what God says to the situation in our life. That's what we're supposed to feel. When our, when our father walks in the living room and all the kids are running amok in the living room, we're supposed to feel like the father is painfully engaged with what's going on in the amok. You know, and what's going on in the living room. We don't want a disconnected father. We don't want a father who's up at 30,000 feet wondering when the football game comes on. I plead with you today. I plead with you. Give me your heart. Let me be your dad today. Just one day. Don't worry. It won't be real painful. I promise. But if you don't give me your heart in this sermon, it bodes ill for the future spiritual life that you have. Because I'm going to be preaching the text as the single most disgusting, painful, rejected text in the American church today. Absolutely nobody lives by it. Nobody expects anybody to live by it. And everybody thinks that they're the one person to whom it doesn't apply. Now, watch this. Are you ready? Okay. Simon says, stand up. I said Simon says, stand up. Come on, stand up. Come on, stand up. Stand up. That's my son's the last one to go up. Okay, sit down. Uh, Simon says, sit down. You think I'm done? Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your ear. Simon says, touch the bald spot on your head. Okay, now listen to me. 
There were many of you who were angry at me just now for doing that. Some of you thought it was funny. Some of you were angry. Why? Why are you angry? Can I not tell you what to do? Okay, now I'm going to do it again. Simon says, stand up. Simon says, sit down. Now, let me ask you this question. Was that an abuse of pastoral authority? Was that an abuse of pastoral authority? It wasn't. Why? Because there's no command of Scripture prohibiting you from standing up when I tell you to stand. Right? What possible construct can you come up with that would defend you from standing when I tell you to stand? Now, what you could say is that standing is popish. It's like the Roman Catholic Church. He's leading us to Rome. And back at the time of the Puritans, there were arguments just like that made about standing and sitting and kneeling in worship. That it was popish and that no pastor should make anybody do it because the only rule in worship is the regulative principle, namely, you can only command people to do what is commanded in the New Testament that you do. And so it is not commanded in the New Testament that you stand then for the pastor to make you stand is for him to exercise unbiblical authority to lead back to Rome. That's why they would not allow you to have rings. Many Puritans would not allow rings in a wedding service because rings are not prescribed by the New Testament. It's a worship service. Therefore, the pastor to use a ring and particularly to pronounce the Trinitarian formula over the ring is for that pastor to bind your consciences in a matter that Scripture doesn't and therefore he's leading you back to Rome. And he's making marriage back into the sacrament the Catholics say it is, which we know it isn't. And I could go on and on and on and recite the history of why you do actually resent standing in a worship service when I tell you to stand. Deep in the heart of Protestants is this principle that at the center of Protestantism is a rejection of church authority. Read all the fathers of the Reformation on this text, and sooner or later they will mention the Roman Catholic Church and how Protestants have learned that we never have to submit to authority in Protestant ecclesiastical matters. That that's what it means to be a Protestant. So a friend of mine converted to Catholicism, a friend from seminary, went to Grove City College, then went to Gordon-Conwell. I knew him and his wife. His, uh, his brother-in-law is a pastor in my presbytery up in Carmel. Uh, Tim, where is, well, anyhow, one of you, he's your pastor. There you are. Yeah. Um, this guy's name is Scott Hahn. And so Scott Hahn converts to Roman Catholicism, and a whole bunch of Presbyterian pastors have converted to Roman Catholicism, and they have a ministry of trying to get Reformed Presbyterian pastors to convert to Catholicism. And so they get our names and they begin to call us and send us emails and send us packets of reading material. And they're very intentional and they've been very successful among Reformed pastors, all right, Presbyterians, right? And so they ask me if they can send me material. I say, sure, fine. I always, I've always read a tremendous amount of Roman Catholic material. Fine, give me more. So they send it to me. And one of the things is a tape by Scott Hahn in which he tells Roman Catholics what the real issue is to evangelical Protestant Presbyterian people. What is it that really keeps us from converting to Rome? Now, being at this church, you know immediately that your answer should be what? Right away, it should be what? Come on. What? Come on, you're failing me. I'm failing you. Right away, it should be immediately justification justification, the doctrine of justification, specifically the distinction between imputation and infusion. All right? That's what it should be. That's still the issue with Rome. What did Scott Hahn say the issue was? He said, far and away, the largest issue, the, the major hurdle, the thing that keeps us from being able to bring these people back into the mother church of Rome is what? The doctrine of the Pope. And the minute I heard him say that, I turned the tape off. Why? I don't have a problem with the Pope. 
I just don't. Now, I don't think he's infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, but I think he's been much more faithful to Scripture than most Protestant pastors. I don't think authority, real authority exercised in the church is bad. I don't think that's what it means to be a Protestant. That we don't have authority and Roman Catholics do. I think that authority is a blessing. And that nobody should ever apologize for it who knows Jesus Christ. Because the entry to Jesus Christ is to confess that he is Lord. Now, do I believe that you're saved by submitting to Jesus? No, I don't. By putting faith in him, yes. But all through the book of Acts, you see, they proclaimed him, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. There's absolutely no ability to take away the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of his Father and to have... Christian faith intact. They're dead. They're gone. God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And fatherhood connotes authority, denotes authority, is authority. And so, if we look at ourselves as Americans and we think we started, what, with the Revolutionary War, and we all know what that's about. It's very interesting. One of the sermons I read from a couple centuries ago in preparing for preaching this sermon, that just incidentally, as, 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 the, as the pastor was writing, he mentioned the rebellion of the colonies against the king. <laughs> and then I realized which side of the pond he was writing from. Obviously, he was British because he called it a rebellion. Have you ever heard anybody in this country call it a rebellion? It was a revolution. And Presbyterian pastors led the way, right? So what I want you to do is give me your heart at the beginning of this sermon. I want your heart. I want you to say, I need a father, and now Tim is my father, and God's pleased to use Tim, so I'll listen very carefully and submit to what he teaches and preaches. And so that's why I did that little stupid thing of standing up and sitting down. Why? Because I think we need to be exercised in submitting to authority. Because our authority muscles have gotten really brittle and weak. And so, why shouldn't I exercise you by having you stand and sit? I mean, think about it. You know, it didn't hurt you, did it? I mean, really, it didn't hurt you. And was I on an ego trip? You can think I was, but I wasn't. I was exercising your muscles. You can always say that a king, that a police officer, that a judge, that a teacher, that a professor, that a major professor, that a husband, and that a father, and that a mother is on an ego trip when they tell you what to do. There are an infinite number of ways you can defend your own rebellion. But how did I benefit by having you stand? I mean, really? It didn't help me. I didn't get any money from it. <laughs> and it irritated some of you, and I did it knowing that so that then I could point out you were irritated and then say, now chill out. I'm going to preach to you. Give me your heart. Give me your submission. Let me be your dad today, okay? Now, what text do I want you to hear today? I want you to hear Hebrews 13, 17, and 18. And it reads like this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Father, we ask that you will feed us today from this word. And, Father, that you will create a revival of submission and obedience in your people. And that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of every heart here will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who are these leaders who are referred to when it says at the beginning of our text, Hebrews 13:17, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. 
Well, if you look earlier in the chapter at verse 7, you'll see another verse referring to these leaders where it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. It's likely that verse 7 is referring to dead pastors and elders, those who in the past led them, maybe martyred, a lot of martyrdom spoken of in the book of Hebrews. And so these were people that had gone on, and they were able to look back on them and to remember how they had preached, how they had taught, and then consider the outcome of their lives and of their teaching, and then, considering the outcome, the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So we see on the part of the dead people that they're to look back at them, they're to remember them, they're to remember what they taught, then they're to judge the fruit of their teaching. Consider the outcome. You could take the elders of our church and compare them to you as a congregation. Spend a lot of time interviewing you as a congregation and consider the outcome of their teaching and their leadership. And you could judge them negatively or positively on the basis of the fruit here in this church. They look back. They remember how they taught. They consider the outcome of what they taught of their faith. And then what? Well, at the end of verse 7, it says, Imitate their faith. Now, obviously, don't imitate their faith if it has bad fruit. You know, if the fruit it's producing is like vines of poison ivy, you don't imitate their faith. If it's people who are faithless, marriages where the wife does not submit to the husband and the husband doesn't love the wife, church where everybody is nasty and complaining about everybody else, where my dad used to say the best way to consider the outcome of a particular church's leaders was to go in the kitchen and feel whether there was dust on the plates in the kitchen. If they're not eating together, the outcome isn't good. There are a whole bunch of different ways. I think that one good way would be to look at the incident of incidents of divorce of the pastors who perform ceremonies of marriage in the church. How many people get divorced? You know, it seems like a pretty good way to test the fruit. You all know you can test our fruit, right? You know that. If everybody in the church is like the 1984 Apple commercial, you know, well, the outcome isn't good. Why? Because always when the Holy Spirit is present in a people corporately and individually, the individual personalities and gifts of the people are built up and not silenced. All right. So idiosyncratic people in a congregation is a good sign of health. It's what the university calls diversity and has none of. The church really does. There are really diverse people here in this church. I promise you. And we consider them treasures. We even let one of them preach. (laughs) And so you consider the outcome, and then you imitate their faith. All right? Now, who is the authority spoken of at the end of this chapter in verse 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them. So we go from those who are dead or those who have been martyred or those who have moved away to those who are present. The faces that you actually see. And there we see, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. This has to be spiritual authority. Why? Because they're keeping watch over your soul. It's not a way that we think of judges and policemen. Right? George Bush is not keeping watch over our soul. I mean, he might say he is. You know what I'm saying? But that's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about civil authority. We're talking about ecclesiastical authority or church authority. Now, here's the problem I run into here. I read all the fathers of the church. I read Calvin. I read John Wesley. I read St. Chrysostom on this text And I don't find anybody arguing for the existence of the church. No one. Everybody takes the church for granted. In fact, I don't even find anybody really arguing for the existence of the authority in the church until more recently. And there barely what I find them arguing for is how to know when you're dealing with good and with bad authority. They just take authority for granted. So Calvin, for instance, spends a good deal of time warning against the authority of Rome. Is that okay with you? Calvin spends a good deal of time warning against the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Is that okay with you? Now, is it because he says Protestants don't have authority? Now, if you know anything about Calvin, he, he, he was a believer in authority. Right? Right? 
So why is he warning? Well, he's warning because they teach the unbiblical doctrine of justification. And so he says, don't submit to them. They're leading you away from Jesus Christ. He doesn't say don't submit to them because they're acting as if God wants us to have authority and to submit to it. And we all know that the church is an egalitarian organization. He doesn't say that. Now, theoretically in your brain, because he lived 500 years ago, you're okay with Calvin saying, be on watch against the authority of Rome, right? Nobody has an objection to it, right? But wait a second. Let me read what he actually says and then see if you have a problem with it. Okay? This is Calvin, sort of a calm man. Not Luther. This isn't Luther. This is Calvin. He says, how does this, he says, the Spirit bids us obediently to receive the doctrine of godly and faithful bishops and to obey their wholesome counsels. He bids us also to honor them. But how does this favor mere apes of bishops? He calls the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church apes. Now, I, even I, have never done that. All right? And he goes on. And yet, not only such as all those who are bishops under the papacy, but they are cruel murderers of souls and rapacious wolves. I've never said that. And yet, a number of you have been very angry that I have even spoken critically of the Roman Catholic Church. So... Some of you are willing for Calvin to do it because he lived 500 years ago, but probably very few of you are comfortable with calling the bishops apes and saying they're rapacious. In other words, aggressively raping the souls of their people. And what? That they are cruel murderers of souls and that they are wolves. Now, who did he get wolf from? He got it from Jesus, didn't he? Okay, and so this is what he says. He says, watch out for them. And so you go back in church history and you don't find him saying they act as if they have authority when we know that Jesus has made the church into a democracy or an egalitarian organization. And the very fact that they claim authority is an indication that they're not biblical and that they're wolves. So stay away from them. Anybody claiming authority, stay away from them. That's not what he says. What he says is they're devouring souls, they're apes, they're rapacious, and you should stay away from them because they are harming your soul. They are murderers of souls. Why? Not because they exercise authority, but because they use their authority to lead you away from the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's why. And people, I know you because I know myself. I study myself carefully. And I assume that you're like I am. And I know that you do not believe that that is what is at stake with Rome today. So I'll get off Rome. I'll leave Rome behind and I'll say, that is what is at stake in your choice of an evangelical Protestant church today. It's your soul. And you go, yeah, this is another one of his themes. You know, he's always acting as if this is the only true church. No, I've never said that. I've never said this is the only. There are many, many thousands and thousands and thousands of true churches but what I do do is I make you discern between one church and another. I don't let you just say, well, all churches lead to the same place because they're Protestant and evangelical. I don't say it. It's not true. Now, what would be one of the clearest ways that you could discern between a church that is not rapacious, that's not killing your soul, that is not a bunch of apes in authority, and a church where the authority is godly, and where they're protecting your soul. How would you discern between a church that was unfaithful to you and your children and which was raping your family's souls and leading them to hell and were wolves and were apes and those who were godly shepherds who were carefully protecting you? How would you know the difference between them? And the minute I ask the question, you know what the answer is. Well, let's see. The apes 
would go around, you know, picking at nits and would never say anything intelligible because they're apes. You know, they would not warn you about anything because they can't discern anything. They smell. Apes smell. You know, they don't even know about hygiene. You don't go to an ape for discernment about your soul and the souls of your loved ones. The people you can trust are those who obviously are able to weigh between truth and falsehood. And then to warn you about falsehood. Right? 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 Okay, right. The people that are not apes are those who are able to discern between a divisive person and a peaceable person and to warn you against a divisive person. Right? Right? I mean, come on. It says, warn a divisive man once, then a second time, and then have nothing to do with him. An ape couldn't do that. An ape would sit there and go, you know, it takes a shepherd to see a divisive man and to go to him privately and warn him and then to warn him again and then to think, oh, I think there's a scripture that applies to this. Oh, yeah, warn a divisive man. And then I have nothing to do. Oh, no, 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 we can't do that because then it would get public and it would be such a scandal and nobody would ever like me again and I like to be liked. You see, you need a discerning man in the position of an elder who will see divisiveness, remember what Scripture says about it, and do it! And if you've never seen a church discipline a man for divisiveness, there must not be one other church on the face of this country that has divisive people who don't stop after two warnings. Because otherwise, where's the obedience? All of you who have been in a church that have warned a divisive man once and then a second time and then had nothing to do with him, and you've known about it, raise your hand. Well, it doesn't even look like a tenth of the church. So it must be this text has no application to the church today, right? Isn't that sweet? Come on, I told you, I know myself, so I know you. You know, I'm so relieved that there are texts like this that really have no application to our lives today. You know, it makes me feel so much better. You know, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Obey them and submit to them. Obey them. John Wesley has a very interesting sermon on this. And you know I'm Reformed, so I'm not Wesleyan, right? Very interesting sermon on this where he says, okay, so what are you supposed to submit and obey to obey them in? And he says, well, he says it's obvious you shouldn't submit and obey them in matters that God has told you what to do because then you're not submitting and obeying your elders. You're submitting and obeying God. And it's obvious it doesn't mean places where God has told us what not to do Because then you're not submitting and obeying them, but you're submitting and obeying God, who told you what not to do. The only place where you have the ability of obeying this text is in matters that are uh, not addressed in Scripture. Those are the places where you have the ability of obeying this text. Because those are the places where your pastor is not simply giving you a direct command of God or a direct prohibition of God, but actually taking things of God and applying them to your life in a way that he can't just simply say, the Bible says this and the Bible says don't do this. In other words, where he's exercising discernment and judgment. And that's where you get to obey this command. And you don't like that. And the reason you don't like that is you don't ever want to feel like you're obeying a man. You want to always feel like you're obeying God. Always. No pastor should ever tell you to do something that's not clearly commanded in Scripture. This is bogus. It's absolutely bogus. Pastors are always telling you to do, elders are always telling you to do things that aren't directly commanded in Scripture. And you have a choice to submit or not to submit. 
Your husband, for heaven's sakes, is constantly telling you to do things that are not directly commanded in Scripture. You have a choice to submit or not to submit. Submission is not simply where you don't even have to think that there's a man, human man, standing in front of you telling you what to do. You can just think that it's God. You know, and you can say, he said not to commit adultery and by, you know, that's just, I remember that in the Ten Commandments. All right, I'll, I'll not commit adultery, you know. It says not to steal, not to lie, not to bear false witness, not to envy, you know, not to covet, not to, you know, and all those things. I like it when my pastor says to me to obey Scripture. And so what about when the pastor asks you to stand at the beginning of worship? Huh? Huh? Does Scripture tell you to do it? No. It doesn't. So why do you do it? Well, you do it because you're submitting to those who keep watch over your souls. You're submitting to them. And I could go on and on and on and tell you how the elders of this church exercise authority over you and you submit to it. And not one of the things that I'd mention are things that are explicitly commanded or prohibited in Scripture. And that's what it's saying here. Submit to them. Because even though they're not explicitly commanded or explicitly prohibited in Scripture, your obedience of them is helpful and, and fruitful and, and protective to your soul and to the souls of the other people in this church. In other words, when we submit to authority... God is pleased to produce from that submission sanctification and holiness in us. Can you understand that? How do you get holiness from submission? Well, every time your professor of English gives you a D instead of the A you think you deserve, you learn humility and you work harder, theoretically. Okay? It's a negative grade. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell her to give you a negative grade. She did it. And it's helpful because it humbles you. Right? Right? It makes you more meek and humble. Right? How many of you would, play, would pay to have an instructor of whatever instrument you play or your voice teacher come every time and say, Why, you're just beautiful. It was so nice. You wouldn't go back a second week. They're not helpful. And yet when it comes to your preacher, you want your preacher to tell you how wonderful you are and how evil the outside world is. Do you understand? You don't want me to like tell you that there's something wrong with you, <laughs> you know. And if I do that, you come and tell me there's something wrong with me. Namely that I said there was something wrong with you. It's hilarious how often that happens, you know. It happens all the time. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And you say, yes, as long as I see that Scripture commands what they say. And I say, no, 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 no. Obey them and submit to them. It does not say only insofar as what they command you is commanded in Scripture. Do you understand that? Otherwise, why would you have to weigh the outcome of their faith? It's obvious that they must have led in ways that weren't obvious in Scripture if you have to weigh the fruit of their leadership, right? And you obviously agree that all the time I and the other elders here give you commands that you obey that are not explicit in Scripture, right? We have to be out of here in five minutes. Where in Scripture does it say we have to be out of here in five minutes? Tim Wagner is obnoxious week after week after week, pushing us out as an elder. Where does it say he has to do that? And yet you submit to him. And you should. I should. I submit to, to, to Tim in that. Right? Get out of here. All right? What other things? Well, the way these chairs are set up. Okay? In the new church, guess what? We're going to have lights that you can turn off and turn back on again immediately. You know why? Because you couldn't see this when the slides were up there, could you? Because these take like 15 minutes to come back on, right? And guess what? You have leaders that made that decision that you'd have lights that could go off and come back on right away. And where does the Bible say that you shouldn't use sodium, whatever, vapor, mercury, whatever they are? And that instead you should have fluorescent lights in the new sanctuary. And that's what you'll have. You say, well, 
I don't mind submitting to that. Okay, where does it say in the Bible that you have to stand up at the beginning of worship? Where does it say that you have to uh, sing four songs and stand while you sing them? And prayers in between. Where does it say that you have to say thanks be to God after we say this is the word of the Lord? Come on. You do it all the time. You submit to things that are absolutely not biblical. So here's the question. What about when it's painful? Like, for instance, let me use just a hypothetical, right? And I'm kind of joking. Okay, here's a big one. If there's a young woman who comes to church at the beginning of her time at Indiana University who is missing within a year to two years later, 99% of the time the reason she's missing is why? Because she's dating an unbeliever. Okay, that's why women leave here. (laughs) I've been around long enough to know that, right? And so here's the question. If an elder goes to a woman who's in a small group or his wife goes to her more likely and says to her, hey, I've been noticing you've been missing. Uh, Have your friends changed? (laughs) You know, are, are you dating someone? Nine times out of ten, that woman will look at that elder's wife and say, bug off. And stiff arm. Now, she might do it politely. Oh, no, I just, you know, I'm very busy with all my studies. And, you know, I've, I'm, I, because I'm a music student, I have to be in a lot of recitals. And, and what she's really saying is, bug off. And then the next time the elder's wife comes to her, you know, I've been noticing that you haven't been attending faithfully the worship and, and, and the small group and, and, and you're not hanging with anybody who's a believer anymore. You don't by any chance, you aren't by any chance dating somebody who isn't a believer, are you? The second time, it's likely that she will not be back. Sometimes it goes to three times. Now, mind you, That elder's wife is doing precisely what Scripture requires her to do, but there's no explicit command, is there? Why would she poke her nose in the friendships of a young woman that she only met two months ago? Why would she do that? Obey those who keep watch over your soul. Do you understand that? Isn't the whole point of going to church so that you have a mother outside of your home outside of your home church, who loves you because she has her own daughters, and who says, no, don't do it. And doesn't your heart just go like this when you hear that there are mothers here that do this all the time? Come on! It's like so obvious is the nose on the end of your face that that's what you want in a church, right? Right? Isn't that what you want? Don't you want pastors who, when you decide that you're going to marry someone, and that person's been divorced five times, that the pastors will go to you and that person and say, tell us a little bit about these divorces. Right? It's not rocket science. And they're not being intrusive, and they're not being abusive when they do this, right? Why? Because they keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. Now, to whom will they give an account? George Bush? Billy Graham? No. They'll give an account to whom? They'll give an account to God. They keep watch over your souls. You know this trial? It went from 7.30 at night to 1.30 in the morning, and I didn't get home until almost 3. What was I doing? Keeping watch of our flock at night. That's what I was doing. That's what it means. Sleepless. Sleepless. We counted up and there were well over 200 hours in about a week and a half time on the part of the pastors and elders dealing just with the disciplinary case you heard here. Okay? And that was just that week and a half. And that was just this case. There were all kinds of other work that still needed to be done. They keep watch over their flocks by night. You were asleep, we were awake. 
and we were not having fun. Obey, submit. And you say, oh yeah, but you know, Ron Enroth, that professor out at Westmont, who writes that book called Churches That Abuse. I remember a story he told. It was a story about this church out in California where the pastor was upset about how the uh, softball team of his church played. And so the next game, he made a rule that said that all of them had to play left-handed as punishment. And, you know, we can't have that going on. And so we all better be careful because there's a lot of churches out there that abuse. And you know what I say to you? Yep, there are. And 99.99% of the churches that abuse, abuse by not requiring you to submit to them. <laughs> Don't worry. There are, I have not heard, and I've been here for 15 years, I haven't heard of any church in town where the pastor has told his team that they have to play left-handed. Again, that's California. <laughs> and, and I'm not interested in which hand you use or foot you kick with in soccer. I really don't care. If I talk to you or one of our elders talk to you, it's likely going to be about pornography. And if I ask all of you who have had a pastor talk to you about pornography, a tragic number of you would raise your hands. It will be about adultery. It will be about homosexual practice. Men and women, a part of our church. Okay? And not the ones you think, people you don't even know about. Okay, it'll be about theft. It'll be about lying. It will be about divisiveness. It'll be about everything that's mentioned in the New Testament. That's what we do. What we do is we constantly adjudicate, judge between people who are fighting in this church. Do you, do you, does that make sense? Remember that Jethro came to visit his son-in-law, Moses. He watched Moses judging between the people and applying the commands of God to the people's lives. And Moses had such a heavy weight, he said, appoint elders over the people. That's what you have today. You have the elders appointed by Moses at the advice of his father-in-law today here in the men that stood in front of you. And their job is to judge between you and to apply the word of God to you. Now, here's the question. You show up at a new school in Bloomington and you have to decide on a church. How do you make the decision? Most of you make it on the basis of the music. Those who don't make it on the basis of the music, almost all the rest of them will make it on the basis of the preaching. And most of those who make a judgment on the basis of the preaching will make it on the basis of preaching that is not too personal or intense. In other words, I would be ruled out. All right. I can't remember anybody ever making a decision on the basis of whether or not the elders exercise authority over the congregation. Let's see. Sweetheart, when you go off to Bloomington, Find a church where the elders exercise authority over the congregation. Okay, mom. Conversations that would never happen. <laughs> yeah. Go find a church where the elders think they have authority over you and then punch them in the nose. So am I a lunatic? I'm not a lunatic. Look at the text. What does it say next? It says... They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, your submission to the elders of this church, cheerfully, joyfully, is good for you. It's profitable for you. Now, how is it profitable to you when you find a church that exercises authority and when you submit to them in such a way that they're joyful about your presence? How is that helpful to you? Let's ask it another way. How is it unprofitable to you if you punch them in the nose when they tell you something that you don't want them to say to you? In other words, when you're rebellious and disobedient. How is it unprofitable to you when you're rebellious and disobedient? You want to know? Huh? Here's how it works. 
And again, all those that I read in the sermon said the same thing. The reason it's unprofitable is that when you punch them in the nose, when they come to you and try to get you to chill out with your next door neighbor or your wife or your children or to get your, you as children to submit to your parents. In other words, when they come to you and tell you what to do and what not to do and you punch them in the nose, it's unprofitable to you. Why? Because what happens is they stop telling you what to do. That's why. Now, that requires a second level shaking of your brain to get. Because you thought at the beginning of this sermon that it was good when you had leaders who didn't tell you what to do. And now I'm telling you, if you have leaders that don't tell you what to do, it's terrible for you. So you have to get your brain around that. It is actually a curse from God when the church has elders and pastors who do not exercise authority over their people. And you say, well, not to fear, my last church exercised authority and they had church discipline. And I say what? And I can predict what it is. The way they exercised discipline was there was a notorious case, not of homosexual practice, but of adultery. And in that horrible case of adultery, all the women were up in arms because that scumbag man was unfaithful to his wife and left his children in the lurch, and somebody should deal with him. And so the elders looked on the one hand, they knew that it's never fun to exercise authority in the church, but on the other hand, all the women of the church are angry. And this rises to the level that this automatically on a seesaw has to go down. And the shame of not doing something overwhelms the shame of doing something. And so somebody's disciplined for adultery. Now, am I saying we shouldn't discipline adultery? No, I'm not saying that. My point is not that we shouldn't discipline adultery, but my point is if the only discipline you can point to in any church you've ever been a part of is adultery, it probably did not have biblical motivation in its discipline. It probably was just a function of pressure. Women in the church were upset, and if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so the women of the church said to their husbands, you better go to that elders' meeting tonight, and you better handle this dude. And so dude went to the elders' meeting, and he handled it. Seriously. But what about warn a divisive man once and then a second time and then have nothing to do with him? Well, it's not objective, it's subjective. How do you judge a divisive man. Adultery is objective. You know, he did it. Right? But divisive. I mean, it's all a judgment call. And haven't all of us complained? And so, the only discipline we have today is discipline of notorious, unbelievably shameful sexual sin. But not by homosexually inclined people. Because why? Well, because they don't hurt children and wives. Do you understand that? I mean, it's a victimless crime. They kill their lovers, but it's not women and children. And so homosexual sexual sin is kind of getting a buy today in the evangelical church. I mean, it's, it's yucky, but I mean, you know, it's a victimless crime. And who cares if the laws are repealed? And, you know, the abuse of children... Well, you know, what are we going to do? It's a family in our midst, and, and the daughters are being abused by their father. What are we going to do? Am I going to take the daughters in? I don't want the daughters in my home. Let's talk to the dad and see if it'll stop. And so the daughters live year after year after year after year suffering. But nobody wants to blow up a family that's in the church, right? So what is it left? It's basically adultery. That's all that will be disciplined. Or if a guy gets busted and it's going to be in the paper. You, you pretty much have to handle that. Is that what we see in the New Testament? It's not what we see in the New Testament. It's not what we see in the New Testament. The New Testament is very even-handed and ha handling, on the one hand, greed, and on the other hand, adultery. On the one hand, embezzlement. On the other hand, envy. On the uh, one hand, uh, murder. And on the other hand, what? Gossip. It lists them together. So here's the question for you. Do you want a church where you have elders who actually will exercise your submission muscles? 
And do you think it will be good for you if your submission muscles are exercised? (laughs) Now, I know it's a Looney Tunes question. I know I'm an idiot for asking it. But I'm Christ's idiot. And all of you are the world's idiot. And I'd rather be a fool for Christ than a fool for the world. Okay? So ask yourself, what do you want? I can guarantee you these men that sat in judgment on this trial are like, they complain, they accuse each other falsely, sometimes they lie more often by implicit statements than explicit lies, Um, sometimes they don't like to submit to each other and subvert what they have done as a group behind one another's backs. In other words, the very things that are sins, these men do. All right? So why should you submit to them? Because there's not one authority on earth that is not characterized by depravity. You will not find a perfect husband. As my father-in-law wrote, my dear wife, just before we got married, exhorting her to go ahead even though I wasn't perfect. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) You remember that letter? I do remember it. Okay, and now David's telling me, wait, keep it up, keep it up. Come on, put it up. Now look at David back there. You guys, there's no such thing as a life that isn't permeated by authority. Stop fooling yourself. Learn to love it. Yes, sometimes the authority will lead you wrong, and you will go past that final rest stop, and there won't be another one for 200 miles. (laughs) Okay, you will suffer under your authority. But if you learn to rebel against all authority, it will be so unprofitable for you. So unprofitable. And if you're going to submit to authority, guys, I can't commend more highly our elders. They're the most excellent failures of elders I've ever known. And if I ever write a book about my father, you know what my book about my dad is going to be? I'm going to write a book titled, He Failed Gloriously. You know? All right, let's read it together one more time. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Two commands, one submit and the other pray. Okay? Pray for us. We are weary. We are weary. And we are dumb. And I didn't want to preach this sermon. And I certainly didn't want to preach it the second week some of you are here. So pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for our wives. Let's pray.